We are concluding Daniel this morning, this ancient 2,600-year-old book in our Old Testaments. Uh, We are in um, summarizing, really, um, chapters 10, 11, and 12. This is all one prophetic vision that Daniel has to close out this chapter. And my approach this morning is going to be one of really glancing off of this text. So we're not going to be knee-deep in the text this morning, but we are going to be referring to it consistently. So if you've got one of the Daniel journals with you, grab that. Uh, We've also got some black Bibles around the room. I'd love for you to to grab one of those. If you're not sure where Daniel is, go to the table of contents. It's the best place to start a book. Figure out where Daniel is in the table of contents. Get the page number and beeline straight there this morning. as, as we begin, I'm just, I've been thinking about this, this this last week. Strategies, strategies are a funny thing, um, especially strategies that aren't clear to us at first, where we're trying to figure out what is going on. Sometimes I wonder if Northwest sports teams have the strategy of coming out slow in the first half every single time and then turning it up in the second half. We saw some of this with Gonzaga in uh, March Madness, the first three games in this tournament, they come out pretty slow. And we're going, we're like, (laughs) we're tense, we're puckered up, we're wondering how this is going to turn out. And it went horribly, the fourth game for the Zags, if you witness that, but um, they, they, they got annihilated. But I've seen, maybe you've seen runners in the Olympics do this too, where you've got a series of laps, it's a longer race, and these um, standout runners are just hanging in the pack and they're jostling, and, and the commentators are saying, hey, they're just buying time, they're just buying time, but lap after lap goes by, and then on the last lap, you just see them turn on the afterburners and race to the front of the pack. It's, it's, it, what about even, I was thinking about Karate Kid, like Mr. Miyagi, what was Mr. Miyagi up to? Like to Daniel, it had to feel like this guy is simply just waxing Miyagi's cars and painting Miyagi's fences. If we, if we're not in on the secret, we, uh, it just feels like a loss is coming no matter what. It just, it, we're just wondering what in the world is going on. Um, I was thinking through even Lord of the Rings or, or like Narnia. Lord of the Rings, there's this scene where, uh, where they're under the mines of Moria and they're on this bridge. The hobbits are Frodo and Sam. What's the other one's name? Pippin. Mary, Pip, Mary and Pippin. Yeah, so they're, they're like Avalon. That was good work right there. So, uh, so they're, they're on this bridge and they're fighting this like fire beast monster called a Balrog, and they get across, and Gandalf gets them across this bridge, and Gandalf at the very end here is like hanging on to this bridge, and you just see like some terror in their eyes and in his, and then he falls. And for hours in the books, and it seems like in the movies too, we're just wondering like what happened to Gandalf, and sure enough, Gandalf, he dies and he resurrects and he comes back as Gandalf the White or Narnia, uh, Aslan, this king of Narnia. He chooses to save Edmund, one of uh, these humans who sold out his brothers, his brother and his sisters and, and 
Aslan ends up giving himself for Edmund. To, he, he ransoms Edmund by giving himself to the White Witch. And the White Witch and these people, they, uh, they, they bring Aslan to this stone table and they sacrifice him there. And people are mourning and wondering what is going to happen in Narnia. And unbeknownst to this White Witch, there's this magic, this deeper magic that she's not aware of. And we come to find out that Aslan is resurrected and he ends up saving Narnia. I haven't read Harry Potter, but I hear there's one like that in Harry Potter too. Like these kinds of plot twists bring us to the brink of our belief. And when everything seems lost, in the words of Daniel, when the color drains from our faces and our strength leaves us, we actually discover that there is a hope and a power that we didn't expect. The cross of Christ is a cosmic power that almost nobody in history expected either. These disciples, 12 of them and and more, lived with Jesus for over 1,200 days, daily, hourly, listening to his teachings, seeing his miracles. They did not expect his resurrection in the way that it came either. They didn't even expect his death, even though he told them that he would multiple times in the Gospels. They are seeing firsthand as they're walking and living with Jesus. They're seeing his power and his miracles. They're seeing people like Lazarus raised from the dead. They, he, they see him feed Thousands of people from what seems like thin air or thin fish and thin loaves. And he heals diseases or the diseased ones who are cast out of their communities. And then Jesus restores them back into their communities. And his power couldn't be stopped until it was. And his death obliterated the disciples emotionally. What began in triumph ended in tragedy. Jesus loses they lose, seems in the moment that God loses and had lost. And then we find out through the story of these disciples in our Gospels that after three days in the grave, Jesus resurrects from the dead and appears to uh, up to 500 people at one time and um, appears to his disciples and a host of others. And the Apostle Paul writes years after Jesus's Uh, crucifixion and resurrection in Colossians chapter 2, he tells us that Satan's instrument of death, this cross, was actually the cause of our new life in Christ. And so what Satan thought had done in the Son of God ended up being the ultimate tool of Satan's defeat. Paul writes in Colossians 2.15, He, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities. What he means by this is the angelic beings who have control over areas and over people in our world. And God disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And who he means by him is Christ Jesus. So the penalty for our sins are canceled by the death of Christ. Christ took the penalty for our sins on himself, the only perfect one ever to live, lived in our place. 
and he was also raised as the first fruits of what is promised to us, which we come back together next week and celebrate the resurrection. And just a note, like Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday for us, it's a special day, but we're talking about the resurrection a lot as a church. It's not the only day of the year we're talking about the resurrection. It is core to the gospel. Jesus not only died for us, but he was also raised for us to prove that our resurrection too will be imminent and that his uh, death and his, um, his atonement for us is valid because if he's still dead, how do we know that it's valid? But if he's actually beat death and said, my death was valid, I'm alive and ruling and reigning over all things, then there is proof. His resurrection proves that our atonement is real. In a, in a, in a hard world that we're living in, where there's trouble and there's trial and there's legitimate trauma, when it seems that evil is having its day, here I go again, we cannot forget that it's God who has the final say. I feel like I've been repeating this line consistently over the last few weeks. And some teachers say that when you are tired of repeating it, the people are finally hearing it. And so I'm expecting that you're finally hearing that when it seems that evil is having its day, it's God who has the final say. Daniel is this ancient book for our modern times. Let's not count out the book of Daniel. It's an ancient book, yes, but it is for and has application for our modern times. So I want us to dig in and I want us to see how Daniel ends. Um, Go to chapter 10, if you would. And in chapter 10, we see right at the beginning that Daniel is mourning over something, and he's been praying for a period of time. He's been praying fervently for about three weeks. In Daniel 10.1, it says, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a world was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. That's his Babylonian given name. And the word was true, and this word was a great conflict, or this word was about a great conflict. And he understood this word, and he had, Daniel had, understanding of this vision. So he has this extraordinary vision, and what he sees in the coming verses is this angelic being. And this text tells us that Daniel was actually with some of his friends, and some of his friends knew that something was occurring, that, and, and they freak out, and they run away and hide. They don't see the vision, but the text tells us that Daniel actually, he was frightened beyond belief here, and Daniel hits this, he, he hits the deck. He goes to the ground. This absolutely floored him. One commentator says, to judge by the description that we read here, this trance or this vision that he experienced was not one to envy. This is not one for us to ask God for. This one absolutely scared him white. And this angel touches Daniel. This angel restores Daniel's strength. And this angel gives Daniel, delivers Daniel a message for the second time now. And the message is, fear not, you are greatly loved. We heard that once before in Daniel chapter 9 last week. As Daniel... We hear that Daniel is greatly loved by God. And this angel actually tells Daniel something really curious here. He says that he was held up from coming to Daniel for three weeks by some sort of an evil, angelic being. But this angel breaks free and makes it to Daniel. It's really mysterious, powerful, intriguing, 
it seems like to me that there's a link between Daniel's three weeks of praying and this angel's three weeks being held up by the good angel being held, one of God's angels being held up by this evil angelic being. Uh, There's something there for sure. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to chase that down on your own time. It's not where we're going to go this morning, but I, I do think that there is something there. The purpose of Daniel's one vision in chapters 10 through 12 Uh, It's so that Daniel, quote, in verse 14 of chapter 10, would understand what is to happen to his people in the latter days. And this angel explicitly tells Daniel, for the vision, it's for yet days to come. It's for a time out in the future. And Daniel answers back, and he's still overwhelmed. And the angel answers him in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 10. And he says, again, he says, oh man, Daniel, greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. This angel knows what it's doing to Daniel mentally and emotionally. And as he spoke to me, the writer says, Daniel says, I was strengthened and I said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. He's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here now. I'm, I'm back. And then he said, the angel said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, this evil angelic being who has control or great influence over the, the kingdom of Persia. And this angel says, when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will then come. So there's some war, cosmic war in the heavenlies that, are, that the scriptures are dealing with and are trying to enlighten us too. Now, I want to step away from that really quick, and I want to go back to this line about Daniel being greatly loved. This is a quote from a pastor in London in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, and I, I think that it has some application. So I'm just stepping outside of the text for a moment, and I just want you to, I want you to wrestle with this. It did not do Daniel any harm to know that he was greatly beloved of God, or else he would not have received that information from heaven. Some people are always afraid that if Christian people obtain full assurance and receive a sweet sense of divine love, that they'll grow proud and be carried away with conceit. Spurgeon writes, do not have any such fear for other people, and especially do not be afraid of it for yourselves. I know of no greater blessing that can happen to any man and woman here than to be assured by the Spirit of God that they are greatly beloved of the Lord. Maybe some of you just, like, that's your takeaway this morning. Like, I don't really care as much what's going on in Daniel 10 through 12, but I needed to hear. I've been wrestling with the Lord. I don't believe. I'm not convinced. I need to be persuaded. I need a word from God that he sees me, he knows me, and he loves me. Stepping back into the text now. Chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 35. I told you we're going to go quick. Return, it returns, chapter 11 returns to this vision about the conquest of Persia and the division of the Greek empire that will come to pass through the Greek kings, Alexander, and then another guy after him at about 165 BC, a super evil dude named Antiochus Epiphanes. He is, in verse 21 of chapter 11, the vile or the contemptible person that Daniel is speaking of here. 
There's a lot going on in chapter 11, but it's talking about this conflict that's happening in the Greek empire and in the Persian empire. We spent some time on this in chapter 7 and 8. You can go back and listen to those sermons online. Uh, one quick help, uh, a, a theologian, a pastor, and a commentator named David Guzik has a really helpful commentary on Daniel. Um, if you just pull out your phone right now even and just type in enduring word, Daniel, It'll come up, and I would just encourage you to just, if you, if you want to nerd out on some of the timelines in Daniel and some of the more mysterious stuff, some of the historical stuff, it's concise, it's super easy to follow, but it's rich, and I think one very accurate perspective, but there are a number of perspectives on Daniel. There's just a lot of mystery in this text, and there's a lot of mystery in God's Word, and we need to be okay holding some of these things in tension. Anyways, his commentary, Enduring Word, check it out. Here's where I want to focus this morning uh, in chapter 11, starting in verse 36, and then moving through chapter 12. Now, I know, at least it feels this way to me, the last half of Daniel has been pretty cumbersome. It's been hard to work through. Somebody was asking me last week, like, uh, what's my favorite kind of a text in the Scripture to preach? And I've just found out it's definitely not apocalyptic prophetic literature. And you may have realized that it's not your favorite kind to hear me preach either. There are some really, really good expositors of these apocalyptic prophetic texts, but so far, it's not completely my lane. I love the Lord. I love narrative a lot more. Uh, the first half of Daniel, loved it. This is labor, for sure. So, I'm going to lean on a guy that I leaned on last week named Sinclair Ferguson, and I've got a, a quote here that I want to just lay before you. Listen to this. He says, The and of verse 36 points to some period between the days of Antiochus and the last day of history. So what Ferguson is saying is that and in chapter 11, verse 36, some of your scriptures will say then, it's a transition word. We miss it in our English because it's such a common word, but there's a transition happening in this text where the writer is going from Antiochus Epiphanes, who's in the near next 400 years of real history, looking out to an Antichrist fig figure who is not yet defined in world history. Second sentence. During that time, there will be apostasies and refinings. Apostasy is when somebody falls completely away, forsakes faith, and refinings are when people stumble but are refined and restored. There will be apostasies and refinings among the visible people of God. So he's talking about the end, end of the age in front of us, in the future yet. Such a view is certainly consistent with the way in which the New Testament views history and the experience of the church in particular. It is also consistent with the way in which Jesus seems to have seen the description of Antiochus's activity as a foreshadowing of the future. So Antiochus is a kind of type of Antichrist. Jesus speaks of an abomination of desolation that was yet to come in Mark 13. And the question, Ferguson says, therefore is, to whom do these verses refer, if not to Antiochus? He writes, numerous answers have been proposed, ranging from the Roman Empire, as John Calvin believed, or to Herod, or to Muhammad, or to the papacy, that is the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church, as many Protestants held in the early years of the, of the Reformation, uh, to the view also that is held by, to by many of today's interpreters that the reference is to the 
final Antichrist. And he says there is good reason to adopt this view. The king in view clearly transcends in wickedness any figure in history. And then in 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, the time in view, that time appears to be related to the final resurrection. You'll see that in Daniel 12, too. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Two important principles will enlarge our appreciation of this section. The first is that Daniel himself did not fully understand the vision he received. We joked about that a little bit in the last few weeks. We're confused too at times. Later, he confessed in 12.8, although I heard, I did not understand. Yet it was intended that he share the consolation or the comfort that was implicit in this vision's teaching. The same can be true for us even when we cannot fully understand the details of these verses. It ought to be added that a confession of ignorance about the precise significance of some of these statements is nothing of which to be ashamed. You hear that? To be ignorant about what's going on in here is nothing of which to be ashamed. We should be students of God's word, but it takes time to get there, to get to understanding. Give yourself some time. He says, adding a dogmatic assurance to one's interpretation of a passage of Scripture is no guarantee that the interpretation is correct. Just because you believe it's true doesn't necessarily make it true. He goes on to finish up. He says, the second principle is equally important. If indeed these verses do refer ultimately to the personification of enmity against God in the figure of the Antichrist, then there will inevitably be many foreshadowings of this Antichrist's character. Those who were united to Christ through faith before Christ's coming bore many of his gracious characteristics. They were Christ-like in ways. And so, in a non-technical sense, they were types of Christ. The same is true of the Antichrist. History is frequently punctuated by those who share the Antichrist's kingdom and whose lifestyles resemble what his will be, end quote. I hope you were tracking with some of that. If you need some help, um, John, um, chapter 2, verse 18, he's writing to the church in 1 John, and he says, many antichrists have already come, and the antichrist is still coming. John understands that all of the people who set them up as opposed to God, to his will, to his way, to his Christ, are antichrists. So what are we to make of all of this as we try to land Daniel in the next 20 minutes? What do we, what do, we do with Daniel as we have traveled through it? Number one, when it seems evil is having its day, we cannot forget that it's God who has the final say. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Chapter 12, 1 through 3. At that time, this angel says, shall arise Michael, this great prince. He's an angelic being who has charge of your people. That is the people Israel. And the angel tells Daniel, there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. That is the book of life that Revelation chapter 20 talks about. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, those who have died, they shall awake. That's resurrection. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise 
will shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. Going back to Daniel chapter 1, thinking about the, the fact that while evil kings have their way, it's the ancient of days who will have the final say. The book, uh, it's God who will have the final say. The book of Daniel opens in chapter 1, verse 2, asserting that Yahweh gave Daniel and gave Israel into the hands of the Babylonians for rejecting God for centuries. They had been rejecting Yahweh's rule for centuries. God gave them into Babylon's hand for judgment, for a time. Then in chapter 1, verse 9, we would, le- we would learn that Daniel would give um, him favor and compassion in the sight of Babylon's nobles and Babylon's officials, which would eventually lead Daniel to this high and elevated influential place in Babylon's government. And then in chapter 1, verse 17, we read again that Yahweh gave Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, quote, learning in all skill and literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. What the writer, what Daniel is setting up in the book of Daniel is that this entire historical book unpacks these realities that are showing us that even in the midst of beastly enemies, even in the midst of beastly kingdoms, even in the face of lions, even in the face of furnaces and fire, even in the face of sadistic kings, it is God who is in control and it is God who will bring judgment to these beastly rulers and beastly kingdoms in his timing. And so Daniel is actually a case study on what it may look like for you and I to stay faithful when all of the odds are against us or against you. When it seems like the church of Jesus is behind in the second half, or it seems like Jesus' people are falling off of the bridge, about to meet our end, or it seems like we're about to get sacrificed on culture's stone table God is worth our loyalty. The book of Daniel is showing us that he, the God, that Yahweh rules history and he's worth our loyalty. Faithfulness by definition for us isn't easy. To stay faithful means that there is some opposition in front of us. And my hope is that we as a people, as individuals and as a church, are preparing ourselves to stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, to our Father, and to the Spirit in the coming days. Because I believe that faithfulness may be much more difficult than we actually think. Faithfulness may be far more difficult than we actually think. I think because we're in such a... a, a prosperous age. We have so much at our fingertips. There's so much that we can kind of self-actualize. You want to buy a house? Buy a house. You want to buy a car? Buy a car. You want to go to school? Go to school. You want to have a family? Meet somebody? Have some kids. Do the things. Like we can self-actualize in so many ways where we don't actually consult the Lord or, 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 or live with a sense of really needing Him. 
we, we tend to think that our Christianity is similar, like that everything is going to turn out all right, and it will in the end. He will deliver his people, but I, I think that American Christians are pretty sensitive to difficulty, and as soon as we experience a bit of difficulty, we have a tendency to shrink back, and this is a corrective for the church. In chapter 10, verse 1, this word was revealed to Daniel, and the word was true, and the word was about a great conflict. It was about a great conflict. Daniel chapter 1, it opens with conflict. It opens with Israel's judgment. In Daniel's chapter 2 and, and in Daniel's, Daniel chapters 2 and 3, um, he, he and each of his friends escape barely from a death sentence. In Daniel chapters 4 and 5, it shows that God is ultimately in charge, that people and kings are not in charge. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel escapes another death sentence. In chapter 7 through 12, we see in great detail that it's the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man who rule both history and the future, what is behind and what is before. No part of what's happening in Daniel is easy. Like this is like, yeah, it's in some of our children's books and it's kind of prettied up with some nice drawings, but the reality of what these people lived through was brutal. It wasn't easy for Daniel to face down Nebuchadnezzar and offer to interpret the dream. It wasn't easy for the three to uh, face down this furnace. It wasn't easy for Daniel to peer into this den of lions as he was about to be let down among them to be their food. It wasn't easy for the exiles who would return after Daniel and the three to Jerusalem because they had fierce opposition. And some of them, as they went to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, they would give their lives for it. It wasn't easy for the prophets like Habakkuk and Zephaniah and Obadiah who were continuing to call the Israelites to repentance even after this period of Daniel. It wasn't easy for the Jews who suffered in the second century BC under Antiochus and his gnarly persecutions. It wasn't easy for John the Baptist who would lose his head for calling a narcissistic king to repent. It wasn't easy for Jesus who came to seek and save the lost, but he was actually cut down and crucified by the very ones that he came to save. It wasn't easy for the apostles who were all murdered by Rome because they wouldn't bend their knee to human kings. It wasn't easy for the second and third century Christians who were cut down by the emperors and by the Caesars. It hasn't been easy through the ages for those who are willing to live for Christ and who die are willing to die for gain. It has not been easy. Culture that lives outside the lines of Jesus' way has always been dark. We can feel our own American culture closing in on us. But the reality is, is that there weren't great old days in the United States of America. Our history has been marked by times of drama and trial and war, injustice. We are not squeaky clean. In many ways, America identifies as a beastly kingdom, a beastly nation that is more interested in power and wealth and possessions and intrigue than the ways of Jesus. 
Aaron Wren has identified an important transition that's occurred in the last century in the United States. Um, we have moved from positive influence to neutral influence to now negative influence in our culture. What he, what he means is that there was a time when it was a benefit to be a Christian in America, even if the majority of Americans didn't identify as Christians. Maybe they were deists or, 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 or multicultural or atheists or agnostic, but there was a time when it was a benefit to be a Christian in America because this signaled that, that you shared a, 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 a similar moral standard with a majority of people in the United States. Somewhere in the, the mid to late 1900s, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, faith in Jesus became kind of neutral. Um, it was tolerated as one of many worldviews, but it wasn't kind of a dominating worldview. Uh, so uh, Christianity is no, really no better than other worldviews around us. Now in the last 20 years, being viewed as a Christian in our culture is a negative. Being a Christian will get you shamed out of Hollywood. It'll get you fired as a CEO, big tech, or president of a university. CEOs even get uh, high-level managers get, uh, get removed for having a sexual ethic that until 2012 was shared by every president in United States history. Things are changing rapidly. It's only 2023. The president in 2008 supported a traditional sexual ethic. He changed that for his re-election in 2012. This, this is like, uh, gi it's gigantic cultural upheaval and change. It is easy for us to stay faithful to the ways of the scriptures, to the ways of Jesus, whether it's his ethic on money and possessions, whether it's his ethic on violence, whether it's his ethic on sexuality. It is easier to stay faithful when we're still traveling the same way as the traffic around us. But when the traffic direction changes and we're still traveling in the original direction, it's probable that we will get run over. And we will bear some of the tire marks to prove it. But here's what we need to understand. That affliction and patient suffering, patient, key word, modifier, patient suffering, where we trust that the Lord Jesus has us, even if we die. We're unwilling to trade barb for barb, punch for punch, jab for trap, Jab for jab, we need to understand that affliction is an identification mark of God's chosen people. Jesus still bears the scars in his hands. Paul bore the stripes of flogging on his back. The more that we testify to the truth of Jesus' ethic, the wide-ranging gospel ethic, the more you and I will suffer. Count the cost. Choose today who you will serve and choose today, rehearse today what you'll do in the face of temptation to deny Christ in order to get power, in order to get wealth, in order to stay on top culturally. Do not deny Christ in order to get the world's ways. Stand firm and stay faithful unto death. So faithfulness 
may be much more difficult than we think, but also prayer is more crucial than we realize. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. We see Daniel mourning and abstaining from certain foods. It's implied that Daniel, in all of this, was praying. That his spirit was troubled about something profound. He's foregoing certain foods. He's eating others. It's implied here that Daniel is praying. In chapter 2, actually, we we see Daniel's lifestyle of submissive prayer. His first move when he's faced with extinction, with execution, uh, is prayer. And then he pulls his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into this prayer meeting. Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4, thanked God in prayer after his mind was restored and after his humbling. We learn in chapter 6 that Daniel is committed to praying three times a day toward the west. He's from Babylon looking westward back to the place of Jerusalem, God's glorious land, as Daniel chapter 10 calls it, and also Daniel chapter, I think, 8 calls it. Daniel is hated, and he's, he's hated by his co-workers and fed to lions because he would not budge on this practice and just close his windows. It's as simple as closing your windows, dude. It's as simple as just going inside, not letting everybody see this radical way of life that you're praying and asking God to intervene. It's likely even that Daniel's visions came in times of his earnest praying. And we know this to be true in our own experience, that when we're facing difficulty, we need wisdom. That times of prayer, like God not only consoles our hearts and and comforts us, but we also know that when we go to him needing his wisdom, that he often dispenses it. He dispenses it through his spirit. He dispenses it through his word. He dispenses it through his church, his people. When we humble ourselves and seek him, he answers his people. Daniel spent even 550 words repenting and living self-aware and honest before God in chapter 9. It's the fifth longest prayer in the entire Bible. Prayer, just on a personal note, it's... It's the hardest part of my life as a pastor. It's probably the hardest part of Larry's and Dave's and Trevor's too. It's one of the hardest parts. Why? Because it is far easier to do and to talk than it is to humble myself and quiet myself and pray. I wonder if it's the same for you. That Just like making the time, and making the space to quiet your soul before the Lord is, is difficult. It's hard enough to repent of my own sins, but like Daniel, to repent of yours too? Yeah, here Daniel is. He's this foreshadowing of Christ's faithfulness to intercede and to depend fully on God because God is our strength and there's no other to compare. In, in 10 verse 12, the angel says that he's come because of Daniel's words. Uh, an old-time pastor author named Herman Veldkamp. How, how's that for a name? We shall see Daniel's prayers succeeded in drawing angels from heaven to earth. These angels formed an invincible heavenly guard around the people of the Lord with the result that the plans of the enemy failed. In the mighty battle then being fought between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, Daniel succeeded in mobilizing the angels as a spiritual air force against the satanic powers of the air. I don't know if I have a category for this. Just full disclosure. My temptation actually is to shrug it off. I'm, I'm bent towards a more naturalistic way of thinking. It's just kind of where I go. I'm bent towards some cynicism or at least skepticism at a minimum. But it seems in 
this text in, in Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 that, that, that God moves His servants to pray for His people. And then God moves on behalf of the prayers of these servants and brings help to His people. So God places the idea, the people pray, and God moves. It seems then that God moves His people to pray for His church. It seems that what he wants of you and I is to contend for the church that Jesus bought with his own blood. It seems that that, to me, is like big E on the eye chart stuff in the eyes of Yahweh, that his church would humble ourselves and pray, and that as you and I pray for our church, pray for the church, God moves and he brings help to his people. He brings help to his church. Daniel prays and the angels make war on evil. But I tend to doubt it. I tend to even strike it from this list of possibilities. Paul Miller, he says that Western culture, North America and Europe, along with public cultures that are created by the West, so think Russia and China, Western culture is the most publicly atheistic culture that has ever existed. Among the thousands of cultures in the history of humanity, our culture is the only one not to have any regular public acknowledgement of a spiritual and supernatural world. In view of the sweep of human history, our culture is odd. We're the odd ones in the scope of human history. A praying church is a non-negotiable if we're to see the kingdom come and if we're to see God's will be done on earth as it is in the heavenly realm. To be a praying people, if we're to see, it's a non-negotiable if we're to see the Great Commission filled, fulfilled. If we're to see the gates of hell pounded with our offensives and our advances. Praying is more crucial than we think, and faith is a better plan than we understand. Here's where I'll end. According to Daniel chapter 12, it's the wise who trust God, and it's the foolish who distrust Him. This is wisdom. Every day, you and I trust the ancient of days that He has us in His sight, that He sees us as individuals. And daily, we entrust ourselves to the Son of Man whose kingdom has no end and whose kingdom has no equals. And daily, we go on our way in faith until our end and until our resurrection, pursuing the business and pursuing the wisdom of our great God and King. And we understand that if this is how we live, if this is the kind of lifestyle that we give ourselves to, we understand that it does not make sense to the world because the world does not understand and the world does not believe that it's God who governs over over all, rather. Our faith is foolish. We understand that our faith is and seems foolish and seems like folly to the world because they cannot see the bigger picture. Daniel and his friends, they keep this big picture in view. And when it looks like they're behind, when it looks like their God is the loser, when it looks like the strategy was all wrong to begin with, it turns out that there is a bigger plan and a bigger picture in play. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Here's where we'll end. At that time, your people shall be delivered, the angel says to Daniel. 
and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since. There was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, they will awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, they will shine like the stars forever and ever. Skip to verse 8. Daniel writes, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? I don't get it. He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and they are sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. This is through trusting the Lord. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Skipping down, go your way until the end, and you shall rest, and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Here's how we end Daniel. Stand firm and stay faithful to Christ, even unto death. Though beastly kingdoms will have their day, It is God who has the final say. Father, we entrust ourselves to you. That there are are things going on, not only in Daniel, but certainly there are things going on in our world that we cannot understand. We cannot make sense of it. It, it, We can't get our brains around it. We stumble over our words because we, we can't understand why things are the way they are or why people do the things to one another that they do. Would you give us wisdom to know when to go our way and to stay about the king's business without trying to shove the heavens into our heads? As humans, we cannot sustain that. There is knowledge that is too big for us. And so it's in that moment that we we relent and we say, you are God and we are men and women. You rule, we follow. Keep us, keep us, keep us. May we stay faithful to you at all costs, even unto death. We do not have to stay quiet, but we do have to conduct ourselves with the ethic of Jesus. He is our model and our example. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us to be a people of peace, not of war? Would you fill us to be a people who keep peace and who protect the people around us? Would you help us to discern what it looks like in those tough ethical situations where we're confused? When we're confused, would you cause us to pray and to seek your wisdom? So keep us faithful. Keep us praying. Holy Spirit, build our faith. Keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to free us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Lord Jesus, be magnified, be glorified through your people this morning. 
tomorrow and in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.